One, two, head mic's on. I get the opportunity to speak to you this morning. My job is simply to take those words that we just heard read and unpack them for you so that you might understand them and believe them and live them. Understand them and believe them and live them. Once a month this year, we're doing something called Skeptic Sundays. Uh, In our endeavor to be a missional church that makes sense in these cities just north of Boston, we want to be addressing some of the places that people who don't yet believe the gospel get tripped up in thinking about God or gospel or church and just speak straight to those things for your good and for the good of those of you who might say, hey, I, I have a bunch of questions and it's great for me to hear your way of presenting answers to those questions. So that's what a Skeptic Sunday is. Because this is the weekend that our specific country celebrates and remembers the work that was accomplished through the life of Martin Luther King Jr., we thought that we would give this Sunday to thinking about justice, justice. Here's how this sermon is going to roll out this morning. I'm going to preach to you from one text of Scripture, the one that Tracy just read to us. And I'm doing that because it was one of King's favorite texts. Did you hear it in there? Let justice roll. So it's an appropriate one to use this morning. And I'm going to say two big things from the text. Part one of the sermon, I'll be speaking specifically to Christians in the room and coming at you with some gospel truth that would be great for you to hear this morning. Then in part two, I'm going to speak specifically to you if you're like, hey, I'm not yet there, I've got questions, but I'm exploring or thinking about the Christian faith, or I've wound up in this church and and I'm thinking on these things. The second half will be some things that we would love for you to hear from a Christian pastor and be thinking about. And my hope is that everybody will benefit from everything in both parts. This is absolutely one of those sermons where, depending where you're coming from, the temptation might be there to check out five minutes in, ten minutes in. Please just hang with me all the way down to the end. At least take the ride from the text with me. Okay, let's pray together and we'll do it. Father, we believe that you work through your word, that you've given us words that are not human words, but divine, eternally true. And they get to speak to us from the outside and change us and shape us. And there is life and joy and beauty and justice in those words. So I ask you to help us hear, believe, understand, and live those words this morning. Would you hear my prayer for that and answer our prayer? Amen. All right, let's do this. Here's our first big idea. You cannot be Christian and not long for, call for, Stand for, work for justice. This summer, Grace and I went to Nashville, Tennessee. We stayed at a place called, I'm serious, this was the name of it, the Opryland Hotel. And we survived. We were totally fish out of water. You know the movie Get Out? That's what we felt like the whole time. Are we going to get out of here? We got to get out of here. Are we going to get out of here? And we did. We were there in the month of June. This was just when the verdict was announced in the Philando Castile case. 
Um, if you don't know, let me give you the facts of this case or the story. Castillo was a black man in St. Paul, Minnesota, and he was pulled over. And the officer said, give me your ID. And he said, okay, but I don't want any trouble. I need you to know that I have a gun and I have a permit to carry that gun. And then the officer said, don't reach for your gun. And he said, okay. The problem was that the man was now under two conflicting official orders from the police officer. Do reach for your ID. Don't reach for your gun. He went to obey the first order, and the officer thought he was disobeying the second order, and he shot him seven times in his vehicle. At the trial, two things happened. One was the officer was found not guilty of manslaughter. So the the trial was saying, you shouldn't have killed this guy. You messed up, you panicked, whatever it was. We're not saying there was intent, but he shouldn't have died. The jury said that's not what happened. The officer was completely innocent in this case. Then a second thing that happened, the echo effect was even though he was found not guilty, the government of St. Paul gave the family three million taxpayer dollars because of his death. No matter how you feel about the facts of the case, everyone should have been grieved that justice did not roll in this case. If you feel that the officer was guilty of manslaughter, that he panicked, that he made a mistake, that he should have just said that that's what happened, that the man should not have died, then you say justice was not served, he should have been found guilty. Uh, It's impossible for us to get in his head, but we would also say that if he was motivated by racism and said, I can just blow this guy away because he's black, that would have been unjust also. If he was not guilty, and that was the verdict that was issued, then you would say, why, why is money passing from taxpayers to this family? That's hush money, or we would call that a bribe. That's patting them on the head and saying, we know that this shouldn't have happened, but we found him not guilty over here, but we're going to pass you money over here. So either way, justice was not upheld in this case. All right, in Nashville, I was getting lunch with a friend of mine, black pastor from Philadelphia. And he told me that his sister called him after the verdict or a couple of weeks after and said, hey, listen, my church did not preach on the Castile verdict, didn't say a word about it, didn't pray about it. What should I do? And do you know what he said to her? He said to her, you need to find another church. He said, Leave that church, don't ever go back, and find a church that cares about justice. Now, my first reaction to hearing that was to go, wow, I'm just trying to enjoy a light lunch with you, and you just dropped that firebomb on me. That sounds like an overstatement, and I would know because I am the king of the overstatement. Anybody ever hang out with me, and I'm just like totally overstating things? So like, I know what that sounds like. I'm guilty of it. P.S., most preachers are this way. We tend to speak in, like, big terms. Okay. But then later on, I was running on the treadmill in the Opryland Hotel, and I was thinking about that conversation and opened my Bible, and I was like, I, th- I think I get 
what he was saying. This is what he was saying. If you really are a Christian, if you really are a Christian church, you're going to be concerned about justice. It's going to bother you when God's law is disregarded in the world, whether manslaughter being dismissed or a bribe being issued or a system being rigged against a particular race. You are going to hate that and want to stand against it and use your voice to speak against it. That is not just my friend's opinion. That is gospel truth. And that's what we heard in our text. These were the words from Amos. I love this guy because he was just a shepherd in the fields. And God said, I need you to go preach to a rebellious people. He had been hanging out with sheep, minding his own business, and now he had to do this and speak God's truth out loud in the public square. He was sent to a people who were going through the motions of Sunday worship but they cared nothing for justice or for the upholding of God's law. In other words, we would say they did this on Sunday, but on Monday they didn't care about justice. Here's what the Spirit said to the people through Amos. This is what Tracy read. I hate, I despise your feasts. I take no delight in your solemn assemblies. Even though you offer me your burnt offerings and grain offerings, I won't accept them. And the peace offerings of your fattened animals, I will not even look at them. I probably should have said that at a much higher volume. These words should jolt you. And they should confuse you. Wait a minute, God. You were the one who told us to have the assemblies. You were the one who told us to offer offerings to you, and now you don't want them? Wait a minute. Our kids bought me the TB12 method for Christmas. I read most of it. Pliability, people, that's the key to your happiness. If you didn't know it, now you know. Pliability. So I've been on a smoothie kick, and the first few days I made my smoothie, I figured out, you know, you can't put ice cream in there, Tom? Goodness gracious, what's a smoothie without ice cream? All right. After the first few days of making, experimenting with these smoothies, I did not wash the ninja thing that does it. And uh, Grace got ticked and said, what are you doing? Wash the thing when you're done using it. That was her command. So I said, all right, I'll do it. The next few days, I washed the ninja. And we were standing in the kitchen and she said, stop washing the ninja you barely clean that thing, and you got chia seeds all over my sponge. <laughs> so now I'm standing in the kitchen, and I'm like, which is it? Which is it? Clean it? Don't clean it? Wash it? Don't wash it? What do you want from my life? Okay, here's the thing. She wasn't upset that I was washing the ninja. She was upset with the way that I was washing the ninja. My washing of the ninja made the washing of the ninja useless. You feel that? Not just useless, but in her divine opinion in our home, unacceptable. 
same exact thing right here. Assemblies are good. Burnt offerings in the older covenant were good and right. We are called to worship God publicly together. The problem was the way they were going about their life together. And then here's the second part of the verse. Take away from me the noise of your songs. To the melody of your harps, I won't even listen. If you can read Hebrew, it went from communal to individual, right? Felipe, I don't even want to hear another word from you singing songs. Juan, don't even pick up your guitar. It gets very individual. And then these words, but let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. Do you feel this? Doing church without doing justice, not okay. Not okay. Not even a little bit. Feel the force of these words. Stop, because I'm not listening, and I'm not smelling, and I'm not seeing anything until your hearts come alive to justice. Don't you love the metaphor that the Spirit uses here? Martin Luther King loved this metaphor. Let justice roll like a furious, relentless river. Anybody ever been in Amesbury, Massachusetts for any reason? Yes? Oh, man. Okay, great. Uh, There's a river that runs right through Amesbury. We were getting pizza, and there was this furious river coming down. Okay. No dams, no blockages. No tepid, swampy area cut off from the rest of the river where the water's been stopped up. There's just this river, clean and pure, rushing, giving life to everything and everyone around it. That river running through that city is available to everyone for their good. No one is kept from that river's benefits. No one. That is God's vision for justice and righteousness in his world. That justice would roll like that. That everyone in a city would be treated fairly and justly. That everyone would have access to freedom and opportunity and a fair trial and an honest jury, etc. That God's law would be upheld in every case for everyone that there would be no backroom deals and there would be no secret handshakes and there would be no suppressed truths and there would be no presumption of guilt just because someone was black or white, that there would be no racism and no murder and no bribes and no theft, but justice would reach everyone, an ever-flowing stream to all. No surprise why Martin Luther King loved this verse, right? He lived in a segregated America. Justice didn't get to everybody. There were water fountains that you couldn't access, lunch counters that you couldn't eat at, schools that you couldn't attend, and that flowed to the whole rest of the way the society was built. And he said, no, 
I want justice and righteousness to get to everyone, to be available to all, regardless of the color of their skin. This is God's vision for the world, and it must be ours. It is not enough for us to be religious. We must pursue righteousness, justice. That does not mean that we pander to political correctness. Political correctness and justice are not the same thing. It does not mean that you have to get behind what anyone else says is a, a cause for justice if it's actually a wickedness. It means that we do everything that we can do as a people to be just ourselves, to lead this church justly and fairly and wholly, and to long for and call for and work for justice in our city, in our commonwealth, in our country, in our world. That's what my black pastor friend was saying to his sister. That's what he was saying, and he's right. All right, let's pause on that and pray together first. Father, those of us who love you and fear you, would you forgive us if, if we've kicked justice to the side? If we sing songs to you and have church membership and do services, but don't love and long for justice, Would you forgive us there? Would you set a fire in our heart to be a people for whom these things matter? Lord, we know that doesn't mean we need to to preach on every case of injustice that happens, but that we would be grieved and troubled and that we would speak with whatever voice you have given us. We want justice to roll in the way this church works, in the way our city works. Give us the desire and the boldness to go there. We we just pause in the middle of this sermon to ask you for that grace, that our hearts would be changed and our minds would be changed, that you would give us boldness and clarity of thought on what this means. Would you forgive us and help us according to that prayer, I pray. Amen. All right, big idea number two is this one. You cannot have justice if you don't have God. Or to ask it as a question, can you really even long for and love and work for justice? Is there such a thing if you don't have God? So there's something being assumed in the first 15 minutes of our morning and in the text and everything that I've said so far, and that is, That there is such a thing as justice. That there is good and bad. That there is right and there is wrong. A justice that holds in St. Paul and in Melrose and in China and in North Korea. A justice that holds in 2018 the same way it did in 1963, the same way it will in 2080. All week long, you're going to hear calls for justice. All week long, as we remember King together. This is what you're going to hear. Things like this. Racism is bad. You should not be a racist. We agree wholeheartedly. Wholeheartedly. But why? 
who says. These are moral claims, right? You see that word should in there? That verb signifies moral obligation. And for such a thing to exist, there has to be some basis for the claim that applies to you and the person that you are talking to and to everybody else. If you're going to have justice for all, you need to have a moral compass that applies to all. And someone needs to be able to say, here's what north is. Without that, there is no possibility for justice to roll to all. And this is a major problem for secular America. It may be something that you haven't thought about. And in love for you, my last few minutes is to bring this before you. A.N. Wilson, you ever heard of him? In the 1970s, he swore he was going to be a pastor. And then in the 1980s, he completely left not only the Christian faith, but theism behind and became an atheist. And then 20 years later, he returned to the Christian faith. And people were like, why? Why'd you do this? Here's what he said. He said, modern secularism, what he had given himself over to for 20, 25 years, cannot account for the significance of love or beauty or morality. And that's our our theme today, morality, justice. In other words, he's saying, I went down the rabbit hole of atheism for 20 years of my life, and I realized that if there is no God, there is no morality, there is no justice, or at least there's no coherent basis for justice. I'm not saying you've got to agree with him. I'm saying that's what this man said. He might have met uh, Frederick Nietzsche down in the well, because this is what Nietzsche said. He said... Next slide. There we go. Remember this famous one, God is dead, and his corollary was, uh, go back one. Yes. His corollary was, if God is dead, there can be no moral facts whatsoever. You feel what he was saying? You remove God, you remove any standard for right and wrong. He might have met Dostoevsky down in that well, That's the dude who wrote Brothers Karamazov. I'm still only 300 pages into it. I cannot get to the end of the book. I'm trying. Here's how he said it. a Christian Russian writer. Without God and the future life, everything's permissible. One can do anything. When Dostoevsky says that, he's not saying Christians are better people than non-Christians. He's not saying Christians are more moral people than their neighbors by default, because they confess Christ. Anyone who tries to say that just runs into the teeth of common sense and experience, right? I work a day job. Almost everyone that I work with is not a Christian. Some of them are like dirtbags, but most of them are good people, and we can be honest, right? Most of them are decent people, and I'm telling you, a bunch of them are a lot better people than me, without being Christians. You absolutely can be good without God. He's not saying that there's no such thing as a moral feeling or moral behavior. What Dostoevsky's saying is there is no moral obligation. 
Anyone can say, I feel this is right, I feel this is just, so I'm going to do it. But the basis of that justice is their feelings, just inside of them. Fine. But if you are ever going to say to someone else, this here is wrong, unjust for you and me, whether we feel like it or not, you can't say that without a moral source that is outside of individuals and cultures that must be honored by all. So what do we do? It's four doors that people walk through with this dilemma. Let's see each of them real fast. The first one is this, admission. Almost no one walks through this door. Just admit it to go, yes, you're right. Justice is not a thing. There is no moral obligation. It's all just subjective. It varies across times and cultures and institutions. There is nothing that is objectively right or wrong, so let's admit it and then delete those words from our vocabulary and our practice and everybody just live by their own moral compass. Admission. Okay, here's what this sounds like and you're going to see why nobody actually lives there. These words were said by a New York City and NYU student after 9-11. I don't know that people like terrorists, what they do, it's not wrong to them. Do we have any idea if it is actually wrong to murder tons of people? Like, what does that even mean? What if terrorists are born into cultures that tell them it is right and necessary and really important for them to kill a bunch of people? Now, that might sound nice in a classroom at NYU, but say those words to the person who jumped out of the Twin Towers because a mass murderer had flown a building into their office space and they couldn't breathe and their skin was boiling. The words don't fly anymore, right? Say those words when you are the one who is being raped, that rape is not necessarily unjust. Say those words when you're a pastor who is under threat of imprisonment for standing with the law of God. Say those words when your son was reaching for his ID and he got shot in the chest seven times. Nobody believes this in real time. We say this in classrooms, but you can't live this. We all know there is right and wrong, and there is justice and injustice and it is established outside of us. All right, so if you don't admit it, here's the second door you can walk through. Schizophrenic. That's how we actually do live. Moral schizophrenia. We live a contradiction. We say, out of this side of our mouth, there is no basis for universal justice or morality. Subjective. But then we live like there is. We are both relativists and absolutists at the same time. This is like wearing a Celtics hat and a Lakers shirt. (laughs) This is like saying you're doing the TB12 method, but I just had six chalupas at Taco Bell. You You can't do both of these things. Here's what this sounds like. Professor, academic, University of Toronto. Read this with me. Although I believe that values are socially constructed rather than, or not God-given, 
I don't believe that gender inequality is any more defensible than racial inequality, despite repeated efforts to pass it off as culture-specific custom, rather than a real instance of injustice. How many advanced degrees do you need to say something so incoherent, silly? All moral values are socially constructed, but gender equality is a universal norm that must be honored by all cultures. Which is it? This is where we live every day. There is no moral compass that applies to me. Don't tell me. But white supremacy, that's bad. Or black power, that's bad. Or bribery, that's bad. Capitalism, that's bad. Not recycling, that's bad. What's worse is that coming at it this way, it's not just intellectually dishonest, but it's proud, and I hope you can see it in here. What she's saying is, your culture, your personal beliefs, are cultural preference, but mine are not. What I believe should go for everyone. I mean, come on, I'm smart. I work at the University of Toronto. Me and my friends should be able to establish for everyone what is just and unjust. Western imperialism that we're so against, this is just another form of that. So you can think about it, but I say if we're going to be consistent and honest and humble, this is not a door that we can walk through. It's just not. All right, here's door number three. We go, no, 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 there is absolutes out there. There are. But the standard for justice is not divine. It's not God. It's something else. The social sciences, you know, they've worked super hard at this. Where do we get our moral compass from? They've come up with two main suggestions. One is this, right and wrong are feelings that have been instilled in us through evolutionary or social constructive processes over time. So that would sound like this. Our sort of monkey ancestors who were in the process of becoming us, they survived. And it was the ones who felt loving sacrifice for others. And the ones who felt equality and care for the poor were important. And who felt like loving the marginalized or not killing others, that was the way to go. These were the ones who survived at a faster clip than those who didn't. You know how John McLean outlived Hans Gruber in Die Hard? Christmas movie? That's this theory. Over time, the Hans Grubers died off, but the John McLeans, the virtuous ones, the ones who felt justice was important, they lived on. And so you have a moral compass wired into your biology from that process. That's how we got it. If not biological, then cultural. Once upon a time, we all thought there was a God, and so moral absolutes became a part of our human understanding. There was a standard of justice outside of us. But, you know, now some of us realize that's not the case, but it's so ingrained in humanity 
that we should live according to what's been built into us. Either way, this means that justice is, is an illusion. It's not really there. We've been tricked by biology or society. You know when a bad parent wants to keep their kids out of a certain room in their house, what do they say? There's monsters in that room. Don't go in that room. They're going to eat you. That's this. Hey, come here. There is, there is no God and there is no absolute standard technically for justice, but shh, don't tell anybody because society can't function that way. And so we've got to hold ourselves accountable to what's happened over time. Right? Or we can walk through door number four. And door number four is God, or here we would say the, the Christian faith. And here's what you get through this door. Last one. Justice is real. There is a standard. There is a moral compass that applies to every man and every woman. And north on that compass is defined by God an infinitely holy, just, perfect, beautiful, wise, living God who loves justice and hates evil and sin and whose character, as communicated in his law, defines for us what's right and wrong, what's good and bad. Why is racism bad? Why should you absolutely not be a racist. Because God said. Because God said. Now, like it or not, that door is the reason that you're not working tomorrow morning. This door is the reason why segregation was battled hard in the 60s in America. I might have to restart that, Tim. It's okay. This door is the one that Martin Luther King Jr. walked through. Nobody tells you this anymore, but Martin Luther King was a Christian. I don't know if you knew that or not. And not just a Christian, but a pastor. And not just a pastor, but a preacher. He, he was Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King. Uh, he was not a perfect Christian. Some really bad sin in his story. But God used him anyway, and his dream for your country didn't come out of his own ideas. It came from the pages of Scripture, absolutely. His argument against racism and segregation was not that it was impractical for the good of society, and it was not some university professor in Toronto told me these things are true. And it was not the majority opinion feels this way, so we should all get behind this. His argument was, segregation is sin. It is unjust. He knew that arguments for human rights or for justice have no power if they were simply made up by us. He knew that they only have power if they're really there, and they're only really there if God is there. The liberal or the conservative elites is not an answer. We need a word from the Lord. This is why in his speeches and in his writings, King repeatedly drew on the biblical teaching 
that every single human being bears the image of God and cannot be segregated from another. This is how he said it. Every man has a uniqueness that gives him worth. It gives him dignity. And he said, we as a nation, we must never forget this. There are no gradations in the image of God. Every man from a treble white to a base black is significant on God's keyboard. Precisely because, here's his why, every man is made in the image of God. Can you feel King's cadence in there, the treble white and the bass black on God's keyboard? I I won't even pretend to be able to, to mimic that. Why is racism bad? Who said segregation is bad? Martin Luther King Jr., the posters and the t-shirts will be up of him this weekend. He said, God said, by putting, stamping his image on every one of us. He did not ask white America to make black America free in pursuit of secular self-interest. He didn't. He did not preach, I have a feeling that racism is wrong and I really want you guys to go along with my feeling. And he absolutely did not say, I went to Boston University and I have a PhD and so you should trust me on this one. He said, I have a dream And he opened the pages of his Bible, and he said that dream emerges from the clear teaching of Scripture. And he actually literally preached Amos 5.24. He told the United States of America, we need to, and he said these words out loud, let justice roll like waters, and let righteousness flow like an ever-flowing stream. Does anyone do this anymore in our country? Anybody? Martin Luther King did not hide the gospel in the privacy of his classroom or his home or his church. He took it to the public square and he said to our nation, Christians, unchristians alike, justice is a thing. Righteousness is a thing because God said so and we must Go for it together. And he pressed moral obligation on this nation. And this ended segregation. And I'm glad about it. Only a Christian can talk from that solid ground. All right, last two questions and I'll pray. If you're here and you're not a Christian, you're just thinking on these things. Thank you for giving me the space to share some of this with you. Here's what we would ask. Does your theory of life, you know, your worldview, the thing that you are banking on to be true in all areas of your life, does it really have a firm basis for justice, for right and wrong? Let's think on that. And if you are a Christian here today, I want you to think on this. Are you going for King's vision of a gospel-centered justice, a gospel-born justice in our society? And if this text is true, we have to. If we're not, we should not even bother singing. That's what the text said. We shouldn't even sing if we're not there. 
Now I want us to stand and sing in celebration of the grace of God and the justice of God, but I don't want us to open our mouth if our heart is still hiding racism or any injustice inside. So now we'll pray again and we'll just come clean before the Lord and we'll try and do this in a way that is acceptable to him. Father, thanks for your word and your truth and your gospel. This is heavy stuff. I pray that you would help us to not be incoherent anymore, that you would become the fiery center of everything, including our thoughts about the Castile verdict, about manslaughter, about bribery, about racism, and all other moral obligations that we would be so thankful that you are holy and just and good and that we would go hard after those things. Would you change our hearts? We're about to stand and sing and we want this to be acceptable in your sight, that you would actually hear us. And so I pray that you would make this one church that's bold and humble and really excited about justice rolling I don't know how you're going to answer that prayer, but I pray that you would do it. Amen.